Good morning. If you would, I invite you to open up your Bibles and type to or flip to John 18. John chapter 18, while you're flipping there, uh, I know that many of you are around the age and phase of life where you're beginning to think about purchasing a home or where to live, maybe for the first time. And so uh, in that process, if that's you, which I assume that for some of you that's, that's relevant, you've probably begun to ask yourself a number of questions already, right? You know, questions like, is it a buyer's market or is it a seller's market? What about interest rates? When are they coming down, right? Uh, what about what kind of price range should I consider for this uh, you know, phase of my life? Am I going to just think about just a three-year property and then maybe a rental later? Or is this like a, a long-term purchase? What's the best investment? Like where in town? What, what kind of down payment would I consider? Is it 5%, 10%, 20% if I've saved up a lot? What kind of mortgage? Is it a 15-year mortgage or a 30-year mortgage? All those questions matter, right, as you're thinking about what kind of home that you want to purchase. Uh, however, every real estate agent will always tell you that there are the three most important factors you should consider when buying a house. What are those three important things? Those three important things are location, location, location. Every real estate agent will tell you that. It's, yes, it's actually one thing. They say it three times to reinforce that fact because location is everything. Well, why is location everything when it comes to real estate? Like, or, or in what sense is, does, does location matter? Well, a couple reasons. One, uh, location means you think about distance and development. Okay, distance and development. How, how far is it to the main attractions in town? How far is it to where you work? What school districts are around? Okay, location also means state, safety and stability. So think about, okay, what is the level of crime in this area of town? And this is one for us Houstonians, right? Uh, where are the flood zones? Okay, that matters when you think about where to buy a house. And then lastly, location. You want to, when you think about a location, you also think about culture. Culture. What is the vibe, more or less, of that area? What is the area known for, and why is it known for that? So locations tend to develop, right, their own sense of aura about themselves just naturally over time. They begin to become known for certain things. So speaking broadly here, you know, zoom out and just look at the United States. Um, this is true of American cities even. So if you think about it, uh, Hollywood is all about fame and media, okay? You think about Miami, and you're thinking appearance and luxury, okay? There's a lot of plastic surgery there. If you think about Nashville, you think, oh, the up-and-coming music stars, the music scene. People want to make it in Nashville, when you think about Washington, D.C., what do you think about? Politics and power and corruption, okay? Uh, when you think about New York, you think about finance, like they drive the finances around the world, the market. When you think about Houston, energy, oil and gas. When you think about Silicon Valley, you think about tech, all the tech industries are there. When you think about Austin, the wannabe California, that's really weird, right? That everybody has their own vibe. You know, lo locations assume this certain ethos. They represent certain values or principles. E even here in Houston, the, the city of Houston, or around the loop, if you zoom in, uh, what you're going to see is that each area in Houston also has its own vibe. It represents certain values. So, for example, Edo. Edo, if you think about Edo, you're like, who lives in Edo? The person who lives in Edo typically has an affinity for tattoos, craft beer, biking, and yoga. Why? I don't know, but it's just true. Or if you think about the Heights, you're like, yeah, people in the Heights, they just, they have this affinity for like kava and velvet taco and spin class and Lululemon and overpriced rent, overpriced food, overpriced coffee. That's just the Heights, right? 
Uh, when you think of Katie, you think of, okay, they were married and had kids before the age of 30. You know, <laughs> They wanted to make sure they were in that area first. When you think about downtown, you know, you're close to all the professional sports teams. You can walk. When you think about Montrose, well, well you get the picture, right? <laughs> so why, why do I say all this? Why do I say all this? Because just as location and land is important today as a buying principle, right? Distance, development, safety, stability, culture, vibe. So also is location and land important in the Bible as well. So throughout the Bible, places carry meaning. And over time, based on what happens there, those different areas, they begin to symbolize different truths and convey different principles and even like have a connection to certain promises of God and themes. Okay. So let me give you some examples. Just again, we're going to broadly speak to Zoom out in the biblical narrative. Uh, Babylon, there's five different main lands in the Bible. You have the idea of Babylon, which is, was an actual place, but even after it's not an actual place, it still represented a place that you get sent to because of rebellion against God. It's always affiliated with rebellion against God. Canaan is always a land that, that's, that's connected to the idea of fighting your battles, fighting battles in Canaan. Egypt is a place where you feel, you feel like you're in slavery. You're oppressed. You can't get out. The wilderness. The wilderness is a place that you just feel like you're stuck. You're not going forward or backwards. You don't even know where you're going. That's the wilderness idea. And then Eden. Eden is a place where you long to be. It's that place that you see as utopia or it is ideal. Or that's the place where you find fulfillment. So if you think about your own life, maybe you can even categorize where you're at right now in the season of life into one of those five types of lands, if you will. Maybe you're like, I, I feel like I am in Egypt right now because I'm battling with this addiction. Or I feel like I'm in a wilderness right now because I just don't even know where to go. Or I feel like I'm in a Canaan right now where I'm just constantly fighting battles and I'm exhausted of fighting certain battles. Those are kind of five big lands in scripture. But when you zoom in to even the city of Jerusalem, just like Houston, you also see in Jerusalem similar things, similar ideas about certain areas and places of town as well. And so today, as we dig into John chapter 18, we're going to run into a few of those important places that symbolize important themes and carry important truths about what the Bible is all about, what Jesus is all about, who he claims to be why it's important for our lives, and what is the gospel message all along. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so just to provide a quick, quick context before we jump into chapter 18. Um, but if you have, if you're here for the first time, we've been moving through the gospel of John for the past four months. And chapters 13 through 17, the five chapters immediately before chapter 18, those are all one big conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at Passover dinner, the Last Supper. So think Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper when he's gathered with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. Five chapters long, the upper room discourse, as many scholars, uh, uh, I guess, um, define it as, the upper, upper room discourse. And right after this conversation, chapter 18 is what happens immediately thereafter. So what happens next? This is what we're going to get into. John chapter 18, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Here's how it begins. When Jesus had spoken these words, so his whole conversation at Passover dinner, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. He and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So after they finished the Passover dinner, right, Jesus takes his disciples with him 
on a walk, which would not have been unusual. And as verse 1 says, he says, it says, uh, he takes them across the brook Kidron to go to another place where there was a garden. And uh, taking this path would have also not been unusual because what does it say right after that in verse 2? Jesus went there often with his disciples. So this was something that they would do. This wasn't an unusual thing for them to do after a meal together. And just to note already, uh, we already have two places that have been touched on, okay? The Brook Kidron and the Garden. We're going to get into that a little bit more later. But to help set the scene a little bit more, uh, just for context's sake, um, they're going from the city of Jerusalem they're crossing the Brook Kidron or the Kidron Valley into a garden that they went to a lot. Now, I know that it's not explicitly mentioned here, but this garden that's being referred to here, it's, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, and that garden is a garden on the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives is a large hill covered in olive trees. Okay, super original. And that garden area is on the Mount of Olives, and it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's why. Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for oil press. Oil press. Gethsemane means oil press. And so apparently there was an oil press in the garden. I mean, it makes sense because you have a lot of olive trees around. That means there's a lot of olives. So you might as well have an oil press so you can make olive oil, okay? So the question is, though, why did Jesus and his disciples... Why did they frequent the Garden of Gethsemane so much? Was it because they really liked olive oil? I mean, maybe. Was it because they did some subcontract work on the side, made some, you know, some, got their hours in at the oil press? Probably not. But why their affinity to that place? So good question. This is why. The Mount of Olives, why they go there a lot. The Mount of Olives was positioned directly across from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So the, the, the Mount of Olives was facing the temple. And it was a place that was right outside of the city, so it wasn't that far of a walk. It was quiet. It was away from all the hustle and bustle of city life. And when you're on the Mount of Olives, you can literally look at the Temple Mount, which if you're praying, that's an important thing because you'd always pray towards the temple because that was the place of God's presence on earth. So you're facing the Temple Mount. It's a great place to pray. And it made me think of uh, you know, one of my friends, actually. She used to live in a high-rise in downtown, and her high rise, it was really cool. You could see from her balcony into Minute Maid Stadium and watch the Astros play. Okay, pretty awesome. So the only thing dividing her high rise apartment from Section 430 and Minute Maid Stadium is Crawford Street that divided them. That was the only thing that divided them. Think in a similar way about how the disciples are positioned on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Temple Mount. The only thing that's dividing them is the Valley Kidron, the Kidron Valley right beneath there. And so before we move forward, I also want to just to pin this real quick. I think it's a good principle for us to really just think about. Um, because it says that Jesus went there, the Mount of Olives, to look at the Temple Mount often, I think there's a principle here as followers of Jesus that we should look at as applying to our own life. They went there often. There was a rhythm and a pattern and a priority about their life that they went away to pray. They got away to a quiet place. They got away to a secret place where they could get away from the busyness of life and get close to God. Do you have a place like that as a believer? You know, when I uh, lived in Charlotte, I lived in a neighborhood that in the middle of the neighborhood, there was this small Episcopal school and they had a soccer field that was full of just turf. And so because of that, I could go out and there wasn't any bugs, no mosquitoes, nothing. And that was like my quiet place with God when I lived out in Charlotte. Um, I'm not telling you where I do that in Houston because I don't want you showing up there because it's a secret <laughs> place, okay? Um, but where can you get away and get alone? Maybe it's, you know, a corner at a certain booth at a certain coffee shop in the Heights. 
Um, I know somebody whose quiet place is second cup, the third booth at past 7 p.m. on a weekday because no one else is here. Um, maybe for you, that's the park. Maybe for you, that's taking a trip down to Galveston, just spending time on the beach with God. Where is that secret place, that quiet place for you? Following Jesus, if we're believers, it means having our life take on patterns and priorities that followed his own patterns and priorities. Let's keep reading verse three. So Jesus, or sorry, so Judas, very different people. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, remember, Judas Iscariot, he is the betrayer. He left in the middle of the Passover dinner that Jesus was sharing with his disciples to turn Jesus into the religious leaders of Israel for a handsome payment. Why? Because those religious leaders wanted Jesus dead and Judas was the plug, the connect that could get money for it. Okay. Why did they want Jesus dead? Here's why. Because throughout the gospel of John, Jesus was, and by the way, he still is a controversial, polarizing, perplexing figure. That's who Jesus is. Jesus would say things and Jesus would do things that would make people feel uncomfortable. He challenged the traditional norms. He claimed to be God. Okay, you don't just do that in a Jewish society without serious repercussions. And so people, they fell all over the spectrum when it came to Jesus. Some people really liked him. They thought that he was the Messiah. Some people really hated him. The religious leaders thought him as a threat to their power. Some people were just genuinely, genuinely curious and were trying to figure it out. Jesus' words, his presence, they, they elicited an acute response out of people. Okay, Here, here's what was true about people responding to Jesus. No one was apathetic. No one was just ambivalent to Jesus. Everyone had an acute, acute response. Okay, not to be political, please. But the best way I know how to describe this kind of dynamic between how the people responded to Jesus in acute sense, okay, is similar to how our society views Donald Trump, okay? Now, I'm not talking up here to make a statement about Donald Trump. All I'm saying is this. That man causes more of an acute response to, than anyone I've ever seen ever on television, media, whatever. When you ask people, hey, what do you think about Donald Trump? You get an acute response, right? All over the spectrum, it is an acute response. People love him. They hate him. They think he's hilarious. They think he's unbelievably crass. They think he's a genius. They think he's a fraud. People have an acute response towards him. Here's my point. When someone says, hey, what do you think about this guy? No one ever says to Trump, yeah, I don't know. No opinion. Apathetic. It's whatever. There is always an emotional response when it comes to that guy, okay? Okay. In a similar way, that is how people view Jesus in the first century. Jesus caused a reaction that was acute. See, in our culture today, for some reason, there are many people who are just totally okay when, they, when you talk about Jesus and there's just no acute response. It's, yeah, Jesus is chill. I mean, I'm cool with him. He, I mean, good metaphor for how to live life, take it or leave it, whatever. That is so prevalent in our culture today. In Jesus's day, that was not prevalent at all. That was unthinkable in Jesus's day. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of problems with this modern apathetic take on Jesus. If Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, right? You can't just be like, yeah, you know, take it or leave it. Just a metaphor, I guess. I'm just ambivalent. If he's not God, then that disqualifies him from being just a good moral teacher that you can follow. 
No good moral teacher claims to be God and isn't. That makes him an absolute insane person, a lunatic that you probably should not take moral lessons from. You just be like, no, he's an insane narcissist. Okay, there, there has to be a, a, an acute response with Jesus. Jesus said things like, you need to be born again. What does that mean? You need to forgive your enemies. People didn't have a category for that. Lusting in your heart is idolatry and adultery. Whoa, Jesus. How marriage is between one man and one woman. Whoa, Jesus. Hell is a real place. Whoa, Jesus. Oh, everything that Judaism points to, I'm the fulfillment of. Whoa, that's a big claim, Jesus. Oh yeah, salvation, by the way, has nothing to do with you and your good works. It has everything to do with God and his grace. Whoa, Jesus. That's a lot. I don't know how to handle all that. As one pastor says, you just can't have a neutral response to Jesus taking and leaving things that he says. If you really knew Jesus and you really looked at what he said, you either crown him or you kill him. There's no in-between. You have to have an acute response to the things that Jesus said and did because you can't be apathetic. The statements are just way too weighty. The stakes are way too high. It just doesn't require apathy. Apathy means that you just really don't know what you're talking about. And and people who say that, they they really, that's proof they haven't really read the scriptures. They wouldn't be able to, to, to be ambivalent if that was the case. No one in the Bible responded to Jesus with ambivalence or apathy. So if you, if you do in this culture, it means maybe you haven't encountered the real one. And so here you have a group of people who especially hated Jesus because of his words that he said, the things that he did. And these people, they're the religious leaders of Israel. And this is why they hated him. They hated him so much because Jesus was a threat to their power in society. They were the religious and social gatekeepers. They managed the equilibrium in society. And they wanted control and losing. And and when they saw Jesus, they realized they were losing more and more of the control that they thought that they had on the Jews. So they didn't really care who Jesus said he was or not. More important to them about the truth of who Jesus was, was whether or not that they could maintain their own power and influence in society. And Jesus was a threat to that, so they wanted him out. So Judas comes with a band of soldiers, plus the chief priests and Pharisees, which, by the way, if you form a militia, why are you inviting like the, the society's pastors to the militia, right? You wouldn't unless it was their idea, okay? <laughs> uh, and it was. So they show up with lanterns, torches, weapons, maybe pitchforks. They're coming with force. They're coming with social influence and... They're coming at night. Why are they coming at night? Because they knew this type of thing would not fly during the day. And they want to they want to control the narrative. They want to control the public because they need the public to be in their good graces. They can't have this happen during the day. Too much of a risk. Verse 4. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Okay, classic textbook Jesus being so facetious. He knows everything. And he's like, so what are you guys here for? Whom do you seek? He knows exactly. He's just leading them into it. Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So you know Judas is like, yep, this is awkward. <laughs> hey, disciples, hey, Jesus, yeah, I'm on this side of the, of you know. you know. Some translations, I want you to look in your Bible. Uh, maybe some of you have this translated differently. But when Jesus responds, I am he, the, the more literal translation there is actually I am. So Jesus, uh, who are you seeking? Jesus says, I am. Why is that important? Now, 
by the way, just uh, a cultural reference here. Uh, this is officially the first I'm him statement in recorded history, okay? Uh, it, all jokes aside, it's impossible to keep up with Gen Z lingo, right? <laughs> just preparing you for those of you who are going to beach retreat. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, by the way, completely disregard. doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, I'm him. All right, verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am he or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said to them, and he, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus answered them back, I told you that I am he, I am. So if you seek me, let these men, these men referring to his disciples, let them go. Okay, so very interesting scene here. So Jesus says, I am, when they're looking for him. And when he says, I am, here's what happens. That band of soldiers, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they are thrown back and fall down. Okay, just at the word, that one statement of Jesus' own self-disclosure throws them into disarray, throws them into disorientation. Now, how does a word or a statement, how does it cause that? Right, Because Jesus uses no physical force here, and yet they're physically moved from their feet to on their back with just a word. You know, it makes me think of, of a lion, actually. You know, when a lion roars, it is probably the most terrifying thing you'll ever hear. It sends a shock through your body. You get tense. You're physically moved. You fall back. You're paralyzed. You're physically disoriented and nothing happened to you physically. That's a similar way of what's going on here. So why did Jesus' statement, I am, when they're asking for him, in particular, why did it have that roaring lion type of effect? It, here's why. It's not because Jesus was just saying like, oh, yep, that's me. It, it, that wouldn't have caused that effect. When Jesus says, I am, it causes that effect because what Jesus is saying here is he is using the term, I am, that God uses for himself in the Old Testament. When he discloses who he is to the Israelites, I am, I am that I am. In fact, in the Gospel of John, this is a theme. We've, we've seen this over the past several weeks. We've been moving through uh, John 1 through 17 now. Jesus says, I am, seven different times throughout the Gospel of John. And then he actually connects the I am of God's self-disclosure to a, a, a primary motif or theme throughout the Old Testament. So he says something like this, I am the bread of life. So he's connecting I am God to the manna that God used to provide for his people in the wilderness. Or I am the vine because a vineyard was a theme throughout how God wanted fruit for his people. Or I am the light of the world. I am God, light of the world. He's connecting it to when God was a, a pillar of fire that guided his people by night, uh, through the night with the light. Or I am the good shepherd. That was a, a very... Um, you know, there was lots of pastures and shepherds back then. It was a very agrarian culture. So he's connecting himself. I am saying, I'm God, and this is how I relate to my people. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I am the vine. I'm the bread of life. But here you have this, this plain, clear, explicit declaration of God's own name. He just applies it to himself. I am, who do you seek? I am. I am God. I am that statement. And Jesus does this one other time in John, actually. It was in John chapter 8. And uh, this was an interesting scene as well. In John 8, the Pharisees are talking to him, or the religious leaders are talking to Jesus again. And they, they're asking Jesus, you know, they're trying to trap him in his words. They're trying to get him caught up. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, Abraham, if you don't know who Abraham is, he had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Abraham was the one through whom the nation of Israel originated. He is the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the people of God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, before Israel, I am. Before, any, before this ever existed, before Jerusalem, before God's will for this people, I am. 
He's calling himself God. By the way, once he does that, they try to stone him. And the scriptures say in John 8, he hid himself and turned away. I don't know how when you're being trying to get stoned or someone's trying to stone you, you just hide yourself. That makes me think of like invisibility type cloak vibes there. But somehow, either way, in this instance, he doesn't disappear. He doesn't draw back. He actually stands firm and they draw back. It's a reverse. They fall back on their backs and he says, I am. And it's that full force lion roar statement about himself. And they fall back on. And also one more detail before we move forward. This is so interesting. This is so good. Who fell back by Jesus' words, right? Did you catch that? The band of soldiers, the Pharisees, the chief priests. Who didn't draw back and fall down? His disciples, okay? So same statement, same self-disclosure affected people differently. Same revelation, two different responses. C.S. Lewis actually depicts this idea brilliantly in his, his famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, when Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ, when Aslan roars, what happens is that those on Aslan's side, they're comforted, and it's a signal of celebration and victory. It, it gives them a deep, deep sense of peace when he roars. But when Aslan also roars, his enemies, they are shook to the core with fear. Same roar, two different responses. Same thing is happening here with Jesus' declaration, I am. His enemies thrown into a panic, his own people unmoved, unfazed. That same principle is true today in our, in our lives as well. See, there are two different types of people in the world, ultimately speaking. Two types of people in the world. There are those who are comforted by Jesus' words and they bring them peace. Or there's the people who Jesus' words do not cause them peace. It evokes negativity and harshness and cost, uh, caustic nature. It evokes negativity it's the same word. It's received with two different postures of heart, one for Jesus, one without. So the question for you is, how does Jesus' own declaration of himself, what does that do to you spiritually? Does it scare you into a panic where you're not really sure where you fall with him? Or does it produce deep peace? It soothes you instead. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. So Jesus asked, oh, sorry, we're good. Not, we already read verse 7. I'm going to read it again because I think there's an interesting point here. Verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus answered again, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, you let these men go. So he, he replays the whole conversation again with, his disciples, or with, with those men. Why does Jesus ask twice? You ever wondered that? It's like, Jesus, before they even asked the first time, you already knew. So why'd you ask one time? That was kind of unnecessary. Why'd you ask a second time? That seems kind of like overkill. Why ask again? I think it's this. I think it's because Jesus is trying to highlight the absurdity of what they're trying to do here, right? It highlights the fact that these soldiers, they really have no control of this situation. Okay, put it back into lion terms again, all right? Imagine coming to a wild, a wild lion, okay, with a cage, and you have a pitchfork, and you're saying, get into the cage or else, and the, and the lion roars so loudly that you physically fall on your back, and then the lion just walks into the cage. How embarrassed would you feel, right, if something like that happened? That's essentially what's happening here. As a soldier, you've got to feel so incompetent, so helpless, so out of control. And Jesus is, what he's doing here is, is precisely saying, I am in control here. They are not taking my life. I am giving away my life on my own accord. What is really holding me right now is, 
it is not your ropes and chains that is holding me against my will. What's holding me right now is actually my submission to the Father's plan in my life and my own love for everybody else. This needs to happen. I'm holding myself here. That is what's actually holding me. Not, not these chains and ropes and certainly not these weak people. You know, C.S. Lewis, again, he depicts this scene also in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe very profoundly where you have this massively strong Aslan. He's so much bigger than all of the other runts enemies that are trying to escort him to the stone table to crucify him. And they're binding him with these little, what looks like yarn. They're binding him with what looks like really, really used rope. You know, is a gopher really going to, you know, you know, bring a lion to the stone table? I don't think so. And so the idea here is that, no, no, this lion is walking towards his death. You have no part of it. Earlier in John 10, Jesus says this, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So by asking the question twice, what are you here for? Whom do you seek? Especially after the first time causing them to fall back at his very word. Okay. He's just reinforcing the fact he's like, no, 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 you're not taking my life. I'm giving it. You have no control here. And this is also what Jesus says right after this This is very important. He says, see, if you seek me, then also let these men go. In other words, I will give my life for their freedom. So in that statement, right after he's giving his life away, he's also showing what the gospel message is all about, all summed up. He's saying, this is what I came to do, to give my life as a ransom for many, not just for my disciples to go free, but for anyone who trusts in me, they can go, they can be free as well if they trust in me. I am taking the walks that they don't have to. Verse nine. Now this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. So who were his disciples? The 12 in particular? Yes. All of his future disciples in general? Yes. It's a statement, a symbol, a microcosm of all that Jesus came to do to save the lost, to ransom the sinner, to free the captive, to redeem his people. Verse 10, we'll, we'll be done after verse 11. Then Simon Peter, having a word or having a sword, he drew the sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. You know, he wasn't aiming for the ear. Bad, you missed. Um, the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So Peter, he's trying to fight back, fight against all that they're trying to do to Jesus. They're like, this is unjust. This is a coup. This is a militia. This shouldn't be happening. Peter doesn't really understand what's actually going on here. But to Jesus, this is all part of the plan. To, to Peter, this is going against God's plan. It shouldn't be happening like this. But to Jesus, this is all part of the plan. See, Peter always had in mind a view of Jesus that saw him as a messianic figure for Israel, the, pe the people of God, nationally, politically, socially, religiously. It was, about a, it was about a Messiah who conquered by power. Jesus was not about that same quite way. He wanted to be more than that. Not, not into all the you know, things of society, platforms and systems. He came to be a suffering Messiah, not a conquering one, who would save the world from their sin, their true enemies. Not, not the oppression systems in, 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 in and around our world, but our biggest oppressors, which are sin, Satan, and death. That's what he came to free us from. Now, there's a scene actually in, um, in Matthew and Mark where Jesus tells his disciples his plan. He's very clear. He says, this is what I've come to do. I've come to die, to give my life as an atonement for the sins of the world. <laughs> and Peter, 
Peter, you know, we love Peter, and some of us are Peter. You know who you are. Or if you don't know who you are, your friends know who you are. Um, and Peter rebukes Jesus in the statement, and Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, that's not the plan. And Jesus kind of snaps back at Peter, and he goes, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the, in mind the things of God, but the things of man. So he calls Peter Satan because he's thinking about how Jesus should fit into his plan, not about how Jesus should fit, or not about how Peter should fit into his so this is the plan, and Peter is messing it up. And so Jesus, at the very end, he says, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup meaning the wrath of God, the plan of God for people. So Jesus' purpose is to suffer for sin, not to conquer for social power. And so Jesus is saying, This is what my message, this is what my mission, this is what my ministry is all about. I will take on the sins of the world into my flesh so that other people can go free. And so those are our 11 verses for today. Now, I do want, to see, uh, I want us to see something clearly as we lay in the plane today because I mentioned this at the very beginning. I said we're going to talk about location, 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 right? Where's the locations? Okay, we've seen some principles, some applications. Here's what I want to touch on at the very end. It's just the, the locations here in these 11 verses that show us something. Because the, there are three locations that symbolize how Jesus moves through these three locations, and it shows what the gospel message is all about. You have those three locations. You have the Temple Mount. Right, so the place of God's presence, worship, sacrifice, atonement for sin. You have the Temple Mount. You have the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Mount of Olives, right across. The other mount, that's the oil press and the Mount of Olives, where they go to pray. And then dividing them, you have what? You have the Kidron Valley, or the Brook Kidron dividing them. So those three things, those three places, and how Jesus moves through them, it shares with us something profound. Really what Jesus is all about. So how does Jesus path, right, from Mount Valley to Mount, Mount Valley to Mount? How, what does that mean? How does that show us something? Well, here in, uh, in ancient Israel, you would know this if you were a Jew. Now, we kind of miss over this by Western modern people that are 2,000 years removed. But as a Jew, you would know that the Brook Kidron, or the valley, the, the Kidron Valley, it was not just this random, babbling, unimportant brook at the bottom of the Temple Mount. It was a very highly symbolic, highly significant, highly spiritual place. You wouldn't just talk about the Kidron Valley, okay? The Kidron Valley, when you said it, you would kind of shudder a little bit. It would bring negative thoughts. It would evoke fear. It would evoke this somberness and weightiness there when you would mention the Kidron Valley. Here's why. The name Kidron, it conveys a, a profound double meaning. Track with me here, okay? Put your thinking caps on, theological thinking caps on. There's a physical meaning to Kidron. And then a spiritual meeting to Kidron, and they go together. Okay, so Kidron, the name itself, it means dark or murky. Kidron. And it's because it's water in the Kidron Valley is typically dark and murky and dirty and nasty. And there's, there's many reasons for that. One, there's cedar trees lined all the way up on either side. And according to botanists, I don't, can't confirm, but cedar trees and their roots, they make the water a little bit darker just because of the composition. Um, and then technically, in addition to that, this is not really a, a brook. It's more of a wadi, W-A-D-I, which means that it's not always, it doesn't always have water in it. But when there's a heavy rainfall, it is then only filled up with water. So think more of like a basin or like a bayou, like a drain, less like a brook with like clear moving water. It's just a nasty gutter, natural gutter for all erosion, dirt, all that kind of stuff. So because of the cedars, because of the way that it's structured as like kind of like a natural gutter, a bayou system, it's just an overall nasty place. And then not only that, it's between two mounts. So there's not that much sunlight. There's not much sunshine, so there's shadows in that area as well. So altogether, you just have this very 
dark, dark place. So for those reasons, it also began to spiritual or to symbolize spiritual darkness as well, because it was so physically dark. Here's why. The Kidron Valley, right, due to its location at the very bottom, the foot of the Temple Mount, it became a natural gutter, okay, not just for rain and erosion and all that kind of stuff, but also a natural gutter for all the sacrifices that took place in the temple, which atoned for sin. So you have all the blood that was shed for sin. You have all the ashes from burnt offerings draining down into the natural gutter of the Valley Kidron. This is a place of spiritual darkness. In fact, in the Old Testament, where people would go to burn their idols was the Kidron Valley. And not only that, on the other side of this place, there was a grave site for common people. So together, you just have this picture of the Kidron Valley being known for judgment and sorrow and darkness and death. And then you have Jesus, as he's positioned on the Mount of Olives, he walks through the Kidron back up to the Temple Mount, a place that he is saying by his life, I'm going to walk through for you. I am going to walk through for my people. The Gospel of Luke recounts this in this same passage in Luke. Luke doesn't, or um, John doesn't mention this, but the Gospel of Luke does about the same scene is that before the militia came to take Jesus and to walk him to the crucifixion, Jesus was in prayer and he was so overwhelmed that he actually sweat drops of blood. There's actually a medical term for that. It's called hematidrosis, hematidrosis. And it means that you're so overwhelmed with pressure and anxiety that the the capillaries in your face burst and you sweat drops of blood. And so Jesus was in that state on the Mount of Olives as he's praying because he saw not just the Kidron Valley physically, he saw what the Kidron Valley pointed to spiritually. God's judgment for sin, true sorrow, true death, true darkness that he would have to walk through, that was the Father's cup he would drink for us, for his people. He was walking through the divider between everything that's on the Mount of Olives and everything that's in the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is God's presence. The the Mount of Olives is where people are. And there's a divider between that, death, darkness, sin, and sadness. And Jesus only can bridge that gap between the two mounts. And that's what Jesus did. He came as the Messiah, okay? And Messiah means the anointed one. And from the Mount of Olives, where you would crush olives to have olive oil, that's where you would use to anoint people. Kings, prophets, priests in the Old Testament would be anointed with olive oil, symbolizing that God's spirit would be upon them to carry out God's plans for their life. And now you have Jesus the anointed one at the Mount of Olives, extending a olive branch, God's peace to people by walking through our darkness spiritually in a way that no one else can. He is the anointed one from the Mount of Olives, walking through the Kidron so that to make us have a way to access with God's presence through his own atoning life. So in this scene, right, you have all of these symbols converging. You have all these principles coming together to show This is who Jesus is. This is what God came to do for people. The most important thing Jesus came to do was to save sinners from sin, death, and darkness, and Satan. And he did that through walking from mount to valley to mount, from the Mount of Olives all the way to the Temple Mount so that we could be saved. See, the the psalmist in Psalm 23, he says famously, right? 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. People believe that that valley is actually the Kidron Valley that David is talking about there. The valley of the shadow of death. That is the place where Jesus walked through. And so here's the picture. As believers, we can now see death, not as a Kidron type death. We can see death as a shadow, not the real thing. A shadow, not a substance. Because what he's done for us, death can feel like a passing shadow that just passes through us. We can keep walking forward in our life. And even in our grief from things that we've lost, that we feel the shadows of, we have the assurance that if you walk through that with me, he'll also be with me through these other shadows in my life as well. And that's the assurance we have as believers. Our Aslan walked through for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage and, and the promise that you're with us and that you're a God that came down to meet us where we were, where we were helpless, where there was a divide that we could not cross. You crossed for us and you did for us. We could not do for ourselves. And so, God, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for the way that you have shown us in profound ways in your word, how you have conquered death, how you are trustworthy and if you did these great things for us to take care of our biggest enemies of sin, Satan, and death, God, that we can trust you with the smaller things should we walk with you. So help us, God, as your people, to trust you, to walk with you more closely, and help us to see how you're moving in our lives. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.